Please let your voice be heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. I ain't pay my cell phone bill, so I called for a friend, and the phone said, ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> but I still went to the club on a Tuesday night, That's even though the bill wasn't paid. I had ooh, to pay ooh, my ooh, rent, ooh, but ooh, I saw I could get a bottle just for 600 I said, mm, 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 mm. <laughs> All right, guys, we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard, where Stanley oh, is letting mm, 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 his singing voice be heard. I have a wonderful voice. He actually you can do. sing. You, I just, you just do, like, parodies. Right. The just, last like, mess around. time I sang... A homeless person cried. Stop. He may have been high on K2, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure oh, that God. it was my voice. I said, who? And he said, Aah. You probably made I him cry. I think that was the reaction to the NYPD coming, not he, to you. He, oh, my God. On 125th Street, you, you, you wouldn't even know that that's like the 125th and, and Lexington and 3rd. Yeah. You don't even see them anymore. The police have two trucks and a camper out there. And you don't see a single so homeless. So where are the homeless? You know, that's how you treat homeless people. Instead of helping them out, you criminalize them. Well, that's horrible. I wouldn't blame the NYPD for that. I'd blame the mayor for that, actually, because the mayor and the governor, because we have a serious homeless problem and a drug problem in that area in particular. And yes, there were some dangerous people there. As someone who worked in that area, I will say that. Mm. If you send the police there, the police are going to do what their job, as long as they're not like shooting on unarmed people, which they tend to do sometimes. But anyways, they're going to do what they're, they're going to do what they paid to do. The mayor and the governor should be looking for more funds so we can get these people help, which they're not doing. Mm. Well, speaking of people that need help and usually end up in a bad predicament, you let's get them with talk the transition, about. Girl. Let's talk about these child sex trafficking victims. I don't know if you guys are paying attention, but uh, last week the if the FBI released a report about their nationwide sting that was dubbed Operation Cross Country. And it led to the arrest of 150 pimps and johns and the rescue of 149 sexually exploited children. So the FBI, they worked with uh, law enforcement officials on the local level and the state level. They also worked with an organization called National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to save these victims of prostitution and uh, capture child sex traffickers. And the FBI, they announced that in 2015, this marked the ninth year of their annual sting operation. And they also netted more recoveries and arrests than any other year. So this was a very successful year for them. However, there is still so much more that needs to be done in order to protect our children from harm. So these children... Um, are being treated as a commodity in either dingy hotels or on a, a dark a back alley. And they do need to be rescued, whereas the people that are capturing them and forcing them into this prostitution work um, need to be captured, jailed, prosecuted. Um, and finally, like I said, they're finally uh, capturing more of these pimps. According to the FBI... The youngest victim in this year's operation was 12 years old, while three of the 149 minors were transgender and three were males. So that means the overall majority are girls, little girls. Um, altogether, the FBI's program, which is called the Innocence Loss Program, uh, it was first created in 2003, and it captured about 4,800 4, sexually exploited children to date. And they've also prosecuted and convicted over 2,000 pimps and adults involved with trafficking crimes. However, I mean... If you look at today, like in 2003, the Internet wasn't as prominent. We didn't have as many social media networks and apps, but now we do. And that makes it harder. What well, makes it easier for pimps to actually 
buy these children, sell these children, and enslave these children and make them sex slaves. So we have a lot to talk about, guys. And again, if you want to let your voice be heard on this crucial issue, the number is 212-650-6903. Do we have the guests on the line? Yes, we do. Okay. To help us, we have an expert on the line. His name is Gonzalo Martin. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry, guys. Martinez D. Vidia. Sorry about that. And he is a human trafficking specialist with the Worker Justice Center of New York. He is also the policy co-chair for Freedom Network USA and as the coordinator for the Capital Region and North County Human Trafficking Task Force, Gonzalo facilitates responses to trafficking cases statewide all across New York. Plus, he trains providers and law enforcement on child trafficking identification through the New York State Safe Harbor Program. Good morning, Gonzalo. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you so much for joining us on this bright and early Sunday morning. We definitely appreciate you calling in and all the work that you've been doing um, to, to really combat this silent crisis almost. It's something that we don't hear enough about. And, you know, even on our show, we've spoke about this, you know, maybe one or two times in the past, but, you know, it's not something that ever seems to be really prominent in news cycles. And it's a really, it's a really a shame. And that's why we've even called this the silent crisis. So we thank you for, you know, helping bring this issue to light with us. And I talked about these 149 sexually exploited children who were just rescued in the past week. Um, but I want to ask you, who are these children? So a lot of times, you know, from my understanding, you have these vulnerable children who are either placed in a local child welfare, welfare system or they run away from home or they're, they're a victim of some type of abuse or trauma and, or drug addiction even, and they end up in these prostitution rings. How, how does this happen and who are these children? Yeah, absolutely. You're right on that. You know, the, the vast majority of the, the youth that were likely picked up in this latest uh, operation cross-country are already system-involved in some way. So they might be a part of the runaway and homeless youth population. They might be uh, somehow involved in the criminal justice system, the family court system already. That's going to be 70% of the youth right off the bat. Um, ultimately, this is a crime that could really affect anybody. It could be someone from a very different background, very privileged background, who is enticed online and uh, somehow recruited into this type of activity. Um, but, you know, even as we say that, we know that there are populations that are at risk more than others. So mm. when we talk about New York City in particular, we have excellent data on exactly what the youth uh, in commercial sex look like. The last time there was a comprehensive study, we came out with a number, 4,000 youth at any given time in, in New York City. That I, that was a you know a, I think a surprising number for a lot of people in the sense that it might have been more prevalent than we would have imagined. Um, that's especially a big number. If that we is think a about big number. Fact that, you know that just Operation Cross Country. How many of the youth were actually picked up in New York City? It might have been a handful. Right, right. I, I think it was a handful. I know that the most rescues were done in Denver, and they rescued twenty minors. So if New York City, according to this data, has about 4,000 child sex trafficking victims and we picked up a dozen, I mean, that is a drop in the bucket. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of these. Yeah, go ahead. Speaking of these victims. So 
I, I did a little research on this a couple of years ago, probably the last time I, I we were able to get this segment on air. And I remember this, they were saying that a large portion of the people who really perpetuate this industry, at least in the States, are gangs. Is that still an issue? Are we still looking at like, sort of like the Bloods and the Crips and some of these other um, local gangs who are as the main perpetrators of the sex trafficking? Yeah, gang control is one of the types of commercial sexual exploitation of children that we look at. Um, however, you know, from the study that I mentioned for the 4,000 youth in New York City, the most surprising finding that I think a lot of law enforcement and service providers are still wrapping their heads around is that they found that of the 4,000, only 10% of the youth were being controlled by a pimp. That means that <clears throat> the vast majority of the youth that were found in New York City in this type of exploitation were going at it alone. We're not going through a middleman or a gang or a pimp. They were simply trading sex in many times to meet their basic needs, survival sex. So just to put food on the table, to put a roof over their head, they ended up going into the market freelance, um, and that does not involve gangs. Wait, how the, how, wait, so you're telling me out of the 4,000 we're talking about, right, only 10% of them have pimps, which means that the rest of them are just going out there doing this because they see this as the only option? Look, this is an underground population. It's difficult to study. Um, these are the numbers that came out of a John Jay College study in 2008. Wow. There's a very lively debate, debate right now going on between academics about the exact scope and character of the problem. Yeah. But just the fact that a reputable college funded by the Department of Justice would come up with a number like that, that's a big red flag for us to take a step back and rethink the caricature of the you know, typical, quote-unquote, typical... Um, youth in commercial sexual exploitation. I think we got fixated on this image of a violent pimp controlling youth, keeping them abducted from, you know, keeping them away from their families. But in many times, no violence is required. No chains are required. If anything, the chains might be psychological. There might be issues related to substance abuse. Um, there might be economic issues. But more likely than brutal violence, we're really looking at youth that have a brutal lack of options. It's, it's a cocktail wow. of messed up situations. Well, 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 speaking of these youth who seems like they're, you know, choosing this lifestyle because of a lack of options, uh, how do they even know about it? Like, I mean, I know I have grew up kind of sheltered, but I, at that age, I had no idea about this underground network of, you know, of, 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 of sex work going on. So how do they even know? Like, how are they exposed to this? The most heartbreaking thing to read about the 2008 study is to, to look at the vignettes and the different interviews that they did, spend hours and um, a long time speaking with each individual youth that they identified to really get their story. They found that the average age of entry in New York City was 15, and a lot of the stories sounded the same around the time that the youth began to get involved in, in the sex trade, that they had a friend who knew that they could make money doing it, that they knew that they needed shelter, they needed food, and that, you know, they liked to see that their networks and their friends were able to bring money in that way. Sometimes they're trained in, into how to sell themselves by an older person who's been in the trade for much longer. Um, but whatever it might be, you know, the situation is the same, that they end up in a very precarious and, and potentially violent situation for, for someone that young. Guys, if you're just tuning in, we have Gonzalo Martinez de Vida on the line with us. He is a human trafficking specialist with the Worker Justice Center of New York. And we are talking about this silent crisis of child sex trafficking victims. And, you know, some of the, the facts and data that you just gave us is astounding. Uh, um, 
Gonzalo, I mean, it's hard, you know, it's, I'm thinking about it. I'm just like, this is really, really detrimental. And I had no idea that so many uh, children are choosing this lifestyle because they just, you know, either they come from a background of domestic abuse or, you know, some type of abuse and some type of trauma. And they just see no other option. And I guess they're seeking independence and freedom and they're going down this route. One of the things that I wanted to differentiate was what is trafficking and prostitution because a lot of times when we think of you you know even me like sometimes i'm like okay should i call this person a victim a sex worker or a prostitute yeah and and what is in what is it about mislabeling these victims how can that also be detrimental yeah there's a lot of terminology out there to talk about this we hear people talk about sex workers we hear about prostitution we even hear people talk about teen prostitutes or child prostitutes though there was even such a thing and of course the, you know, we hear people use the terminology of trafficking victim. Not all sex work is human trafficking, especially in, in the world of, um, obviously in the world of adults, it gets much more complicated. But as, as long as we're only talking about youth, there can be no such thing as a teen prostitute or a child prostitute. There's only victims of crime. As mm. far as the criminal justice system is concerned, as far as service providers are concerned, these are kids in need of services and rehabilitation. Um, but how we get there is a different question. Right. No, that makes sense. I actually have a follow-up question that, obviously, just before I ask the question, though, the comment that I have is about what our guest just said um, about how these are, you know, it's harder when you get into the adult world the, that where the line is between people making consensual choices. But with children, there is no line at all because of the fact that children cannot consent to these types of sexual relations just as a legal matter. Um, but my question is more about how the how law enforcement treats these children. Do we see a situation where, it, you know, in certain places, these children are being treated as victims or as in other places they're being treated as criminals? Or do we see a, a situation where, at least with respect to youth, uh, the police or law enforcement treats all of these children as victims rather than criminalizing them, where we don't see that in the adult world, where generally speaking, people who engage in sex work are treated as criminals, even if they are victims? You know, in the state of New York, uh, we have interdisciplinary task forces to respond to cases like this. So I can tell you that, you know, working with my partners in law enforcement, I've seen a lot of evolution from uh, a less effective approach to a more victim-centered approach. Um, but we're still learning. As a system, as institutions, I think there's still a lot to reform. Um, and it, it is an issue when we try to police a problem away that really goes back to root causes that have to do with education and access to economic opportunity and things of that nature. Um, you know, one of the troubling things about the history of Operation Cross Country, now remember, this is number nine, so we've, we've had plenty of years to learn what works and what does not work. And we know in past years, and I, I haven't had the information about this year yet, but we know in past years that after they pick up the youth, that's where the story really begins. So where are they going to be placed? What, what other world are we taking them to where they're not in these networks that they're being exploited, right? Ideally, they're immediately matched with victim services specialists that's able to give them all kinds of mental health therapy, rehabilitation, housing options. But in the world we live in of budgets and limited constraints and things like that, in some cases the youth have ended up jailed. They were, they were put in detention as a way to keep them from going back to their pimp. And we know that that's never an effective long-term strategy. Um, 
So, you know, the question of how youth are interacting with law enforcement really has to come into this conversation. The, the Department of Justice itself funded a study that looked at the way that LGBTQ youth are being treated in this system. And they've largely shared very negative experiences of really not being taken into spaces where they're being affirmed or really validated or helped to rehabilitate. On the contrary, some of the worst experiences that the LGBTQ uh, youth who are found in commercial sex have can happen in the hands of social services and law enforcement. Wow. That is so troubling. The fact that these rescue workers, once they find these victims, especially if they happen to be LGBTQ, um, then it's even hard. Like it, they have to go through that same suffering, that same psychological trauma in the hands of these social workers. That is horrifying. Um, but we do have to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere, guys. We're talking about, again, child sex trafficking here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. And we have a lot more to say right after this break. Sing all over Selena segments. Oh, God. Because the weekend is about to end. Oh, right. Thank you, but no thank you. Hey, guys, we are back. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on 90.3 FM. The Voice of Harlem. (laughs) Um, We're having a very, very important discussion about the silent crisis, child sex trafficking. And we have a very important guest on the line with us. His name is Gonzalo Martinez de Vida, and he is a human trafficking specialist with the Worker Justice Center of New York. Ooh, got it. Finally. <laughs> you always so, mess up the first two times. I, I know. First two, three, four, five times, whatever. <laughs> but um, so before we left off, Gonzalo, you said something that was really important. You were saying that a lot of times these victims, these child victims, can't even find the right care after they're rescued, whether that be um, from law enforcement agents or social service workers. It's like they're... They, I guess these people don't have the, the correct training to deal with their trauma. And they also, you know, they, they're still suffering even after being quote unquote rescued. So that kind of leads me to my next question was, and this is um, from my understanding, I was reading that some of the children who were rescued during this sting operation and in, pa- in past times after being rescued and receiving counseling service, they just go, they choose to go right back into the, into the streets and living that lifestyle. They return to their pimps or they return to the lifestyle. Um, how do you explain that? And can this be f- prevented from happening with, I guess, you know, proper training from law enforcement to law enforcement agents and social service workers? Yeah, absolutely. When when we see the youth go back to the same situation that we tried to quote unquote rescue them from, it's telling us it's a red flag that we have the wrong approach. This is a problem that needs an army of mental health therapists. It needs thousands of dedicated beds and shelters, long term emergency shelter, yeah, but also long term affordable housing. This is a crisis that needs better education systems so that youth can actually come up in a way that gives them um, opportunities to go into different sectors of the economy where they're not being exploited. And it's a much deeper and longer discussion than just to say, we're going to go and knock down a hotel door and take somebody away in handcuffs. You know, you can do that, and the criminal justice system can do that, but it's just going to put them right back into their communities. Right. Um, no. but, yeah, oh, absolutely. And actually, to add to that, not only right back into their communities, once you start criminalizing these youth and they end up with criminal records, um, misdemeanors, felonies, etc., that just makes life 
you know, ultimately so much harder for them in the future to get education, to get employment, you know, especially uh, most crimes that youth are convicted of, if any, uh, when they're under 18, um, you know, sometimes they get what's called YO in New York or, or JO, youth real offender or, or juvenile offender status. Uh, but in other cases, they don't. And that could create other problems for them down the line, even once they become adults uh, in trying to obtain student loans, employment, et cetera. There's a lot of collateral consequences to those things. Um, if anybody has a question or a comment, they should give us a call at 212-650-6903. We're going to go back to our guest for further comment. Yeah, part of the good news in the state of New York is that we have some advocates within the judicial system and the legal system that are making those changes. So, for example, we have uh, for adults diversion courts that allow women who are picked up on prostitution charges to really be considered victims of human trafficking and have access to services. For the youth, we have the safe harbor law that really recasts their entire experience within a services framework and away from a criminalized framework. But these are small changes that are only being implemented now. Um, so overall, you know, when you see a SWAT team rush into a hotel room and, you know, really, in some cases, really traumatize the youth that, that is, is in a commercial sex, sex exploitation setting, um, you know, you really wonder what happens to them after, how, how they're going to recover from that situation, and what kind of services are going to be made available. Absolutely, absolutely. So actually, we're getting a comment from Politically Preposterous from Audra Weber. She says, thank you for making this a topic of discussion. There were a few busts down in Columbia while we were there. Many Americans were involved. It was heartbreaking. And that's a good segue for me to actually go back and ask our guests to clarify something for us, um, if it wasn't clear to our listeners, which is... Um, when people hear sex trafficking or just trafficking in general, they think of international sex trafficking rings. They think of people being exploited, taken from their homes in third world countries, maybe through abductions or through coercions, um, and then being trafficked, moved by land or by sea uh, into the United States um, and they're you know they come from other countries outside of the US part of what we're talking about today um, is domestic sex trafficking where we have American children um, who are in poverty in most cases who are entering into or being trafficked domestically and so I was hoping that our guests could clarify this for our listeners the differences um, between international sex trafficking that people generally think about and what we're talking about today, this domestic sex trafficking, and also uh, the similarities and where those two things seem to overlap. Yeah, and it, it is a, a tricky uh, term to get our head around because the word trafficking is in there. We think of other types of criminal enterprise like drug trafficking or gun trafficking where it necessarily has to involve movement. So when we think of human trafficking, a lot of people immediately think of persons being brought across borders or being moved from state to state. And in some cases, that is what happens, and people are recruited abroad and exploited in the U.S. or vice versa. But many of the cases that are identified in New York City are actually of domestic-born. You know, somebody can be born in Harlem, raised in Harlem, trafficked in Harlem, never have to leave their neighborhood. Human trafficking is a crime against a person. When we think about people being crossed across international borders against the law, that's called smuggling. That's a crime against immigration law. But human trafficking ultimately talks about when somebody is being forced, defrauded, or coerced into doing something that they did not choose to do. Right, right, right. Um, 
unfortunately, um, Gonzalo, we're going to have to start bringing this segment uh, to a close. But before we do, um, I wanted to talk about, um, number one, online, the Internet, and how this is also very detrimental um, for these victims, but it's also helping pimps, right? So, you know, now that you have the Internet, they're selling these children online. Um, And you would think that with the Internet, it would make it easier for FBI agents to track these pimps down. Do you what, what role would you say the Internet is really playing when it comes to child sex trafficking? The Internet is just going to be a marketplace like any other that there was before when most of this was street-based prostitution. It's the means to an end. So absolutely, you know, we can look at the websites that are facilitating this activity. But at the end of the day, it's a very difficult place to really address the issue because even if we take one down, three more websites are going to come and take its place a week later. If we take down the very public, well-known websites, the activity is just going to be driven deeper underground, and it's going to be more difficult to identify the cases as they come up. So law enforcement and the National Center for Missing Exploited Children have a lot of um, manpower dedicated to screening the websites and really tracking uh, missing youth and trying to um, identify these cases before they come up. But... Um, you know, ultimately, the Internet's not going anywhere. I've heard people talk about, you know, getting the youth off the Internet or getting them off their phones or things like that. And that's, again, not addressing the root causes of why the youth might choose to be in commercial sex in the first place. Absolutely. I mean, to me, the root cause is uh, poverty. It starts, I mean, and it's the same thing we see with people joining gangs or selling drugs, things that are going on with youth. I mean, the root cause of that is poverty. And so we need to address the issue of poverty. Um, But I actually wanted to ask you a follow-up question about the internet, which is, on one hand, the internet can make it very difficult to, you know, try and track who's being trafficked. And as you said, we can shut down. It's like the Hydra. We can cut the head off of one website and then four others spring back up in its place. On the flip side, is there ways that the Internet can be helpful in identifying trafficking victims and also in uh, creating maybe in certain ways a safe space for victims or for trafficking victims to talk to each other about their own experiences as a way to, uh, you know, heal from some of those things uh, once they, uh, you know, maybe leave the commercial sex trade? um, Or do we only see the Internet as a negative place when it comes to this topic? There's definitely being progress being made online. You know, there are um, numbers that are posted to the most popular websites where these types of ads are posted um, that have information about national hotlines that youth or adults who find themselves trafficked can call um, and seek help and get specialized services or get any type of advice that they might need. Um, And another way that the Internet can really help address the issue is that we're living in an age of transparency, an age where any one story, uh, you know, after it comes up can really be shared if we find it compelling. And that's really where the, the movement against human trafficking has really taken off is with, with youth and um, adults who find their own communities being affected by human trafficking, beginning to have a real conversation about it online and sharing information and really raising awareness so that we can recognize the red flags when someone within our network is beginning to be recruited or falling into that type of um, activity. Um, Gonzalo, I had a question, and it's based over what Alyssa said, and it was something important. She said that, you know, poverty, you know, could be 
and is more than likely one of the leading causes to why these children feel like they don't have any other alternatives. It's a lack of resources and a lack of places to, you know, to really go into turn. But, you know, can you clarify how much of a role does poverty play? I mean, are there upper middle class and middle class children who are going down this lifestyle or being kidnapped and captured? Absolutely. So we always say in the trainings, human trafficking can affect anybody. So that means that if there's an upper-middle-class family, has a teenager in, the, in their bedroom on the Internet, and they're seeking the same thing that every teenager wants, love, attention, and they get picked up by somebody who is a predator online who is looking to entice somebody maybe into revealing something on video, then using those pictures to blackmail them to get them to do more. You know, we do see cases like that. We forget, you know, we, we fixate on street-based prostitution, but one form of the commercial sexual exploitation of children is, is online. It, it can all happen online. It's child pornography. It's cyber enticement. Um, so that's something that can happen and has happened. We, we know that criminal organizations uh, recruit at malls and suburban areas and try to get girls into that criminal enterprise in that way. Um, but I think it's important to take a step back after all that and knowing that these cases can come up and really look at trends. And the overall trend is still going to be that the majority of children in New York City who are falling into this type of activity are doing it because of a lack of options and do disproportionately come from economically disadvantaged sectors of society and they do disproportionately come from the LGBTQ community, um, from the immigrant community from the undocumented immigrant community. So these are the same vulnerable populations that we worry about for so many other issues. This is just another way that they're being exploited. Wow. Gonzalo, actually follow up about that. So the first thing you said about how it can affect every anybody, despite the second part of your comment that disproportionately we see it coming from uh, low-income neighborhoods. Um, when we talk about people who are not from low-income neighborhoods, so that small group um, of or I don't want to say small, but the smaller group um, of people who are exploited, who don't come necessarily from low-income communities, do we see that it's disproportionately um, LGBT youth uh, in those situations, or do we see it's more females? I mean, what are the demographics of the people who are not coming from low-income communities? The majority of the cases that are identified are going to be female youth, uh, but we do know that LGBTQ uh, community members are disproportionately represented in the population of youth that are exploited in that way. And it's because of the vulnerabilities that traffickers are looking for, where youth are not having their basic needs met, or youth are not being accepted by their communities. A pimp or criminal organization can offer a second family. They can offer love and support and attention. And um, when they do that, they end up um, trapping exactly you know, that, the population that... Um, that needed those things in the first place. So, sure, you know, it can be girls. You know, uh, we talk about a silent population, but the 2008 study that we talked about, the real uh, invisible population is the boys, that we talk about just a few, a handful of boys being picked up in Operation Cross Country, but the 2008 study found that 45% of the youth who were found in New York City in commercial sex in that year were boys. And that's, that's a population that we're not really talking about. That's a population that is very stigmatized when they are in that setting that, you know, their communities and their systems are really 
not able to see what's happening to them or really uh, validate what happened to them. Right. Um, so, Gonzalo, uh, human trafficking, as you know, it's the second most lucrative crime in the world behind narcotic trafficking. How do we stop this million or even billion dollar underground industry? I know that you talked about the vulnerable populations happen to be LGBT, undocumented immigrants, uh, children from low income neighborhoods. What would you say is the resolution? Do we need more funding for, you know, organizations and people like you who are on the ground trying to train law enforcement agents how to to deal with this issue and excuse me and how to uh, protect our children? I think it's a two-part answer. You know, first of all, absolutely, more funding, uh, but not just more funding, smarter funding, right? So there are millions and tens of millions of dollars being dedicated to anti-trafficking efforts nationwide every single year. The vast majority of that can end up in law enforcement interventions and task forces and things that really try to go in and 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 rescue people physically. And really what we need is more of an approach that takes into account rehabilitation, housing options, education. And that goes to the second part of my answer, which is a much longer path that we need to walk. But I believe that the anti-trafficking movement has to get in line behind the Black Lives Matter movement, has to get in line behind the immigration reform movement, and really look at all the different sectors of society that we have put in really vulnerable situations and begin to repair that. That's the only way that we're going to do away with the root causes of what's driving youth into commercial sex. Right. Gonzalo, again, thank you so much for calling us, calling in today and talking about this very crucial issue. Please let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you as well as your organization. So we are the Worker Justice Center of New York on Facebook, or you could look up uh, Freedom Network USA on, uh, on Facebook and online. Thank you again, Gonzalo. And I just want to leave everyone with this. As disheartening as this crisis is, I think that the fix would be so simple. Love and attention. These are the children that we as adults are bringing into the world, right? And not every adult can care for their child, um, and I understand that. But I think that when it comes to us as a community and us as people, we have to stop forgetting about people in the shadows, whether they're undocumented, whether they're LGBT. We have to remember that when we treat people a certain way, when we talk about this, when we hear rhetoric from the GOP that just sounds, that, that bashes these vulnerable people and these vulnerable kids, this is where they're turning they're turning online they're turning to pimps they're turning to sex work um and 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 they become these victims and these are our victims and i think that if we personalize and we sort of look at this issue and see ourselves in it and get more invested as we are with black lives matter as we are with marriage equality then we can do more to stop this and i think that again when you hear the gop constantly talking about cut funding and cut this and cut that that is not the answer we need to make sure our legislators know how important it is for us to protect our children we need to call them we need to tweet them and we need to make sure that this issue is on the forefront of the 2016 presidential election i think that if we did that of course you would hear hillary clinton bernie sanders and everyone else finally addressing the anti-trafficking movement but you don't hear that because we're not talking about it And that's just the bottom line. Um, On that note, we're going to go to a break. But when we come back, we will spark things up on a lighter note, talking about the news stories in the News Roundup.
and future mixtape. It wasn't really that good, but this new <laughs> Joe Budden album is fine. But you know, it, it got a lot of publicity. It, well, yeah, it, it didn't live up to the hype. It really didn't, but mm. it's Drake and Future. But anyways, guys, you don't care about Drake and Future unless we're talking about plastic bags or scholarships. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, The Voice of Harlem. And we just finished up an amazing segment about sex trafficking where we found out, among other things, that last year, 4,000 children in New York City were victims of sex trafficking. Out of that 4,000 in New York, only 10% of them had pimps, which means the rest of them entered this industry on their own, whether that be for financial reasons, lack of love and attention in their homes, or because they thought it was their only option. And, of course, the biggest number in my mind, 45% of those victims found in trafficking were boys. In New York. In New York. I should be clear about it. New York were were boys. Those were huge things. But we are shifting gears now, and we are going to the news roundup where we talk about all the things that happened in the week in the news that made you scratch your head, laugh, curse, cry, flip a table, or drink lots and lots of whiskey. Like Stanley. I don't, yeah, yeah. I do. And call us up and tell us your news stories, 212-650-6903, but don't curse. Yes. No cursing. Yeah, like, it's been three years and they still try to curse. And also, you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio or hit us up in Politically well, Preposterous. You can, you can curse on Twitter or Politically Preposterous. I will not read your curse word on yes. this. I'll probably slip up and read it, so let's avoid that. <laughs> Selena doesn't know what curse words are. Like, what, That's why what Selena's is not allowed to read comments. That's right. But guys, I want to <laughs> start. Or talk about Nicki Minaj. Yes, asbestos. <laughs> I want to start off the news roundup, guys, with... A story that I think is pretty interesting. Donald Trump and Ben Carson threatens to pull out of the next Republican debate. I'm not even maybe one of you guys know why, but apparently there was some issues with the, like with the seating. They don't the, like the rules. They didn't yeah, like something in the rules that they don't like. And C-SPAN is about to give into the to their demands. CNBC is about to give into their the um into their demands like legit. I mean, ben, the two, the number one and two, like frontrunners right now in the Republican election. You know, one of their demands I actually agree with. They think the debate was too long. I yeah. think it was too long, also. Yeah. You know, the, there's 17 candidates and they're having like 12 or something debates, and they're saying the same thing every single time they go up there. So it's like you just hear Donald Trump talking about building a wall and like saying other disparaging things about minority groups, and you know, then Ben Carson has to get in at least like 15 Holocaust comments. <laughs> That don't even make any sense. Um, but, like, I'm sorry. I don't need to hear that crap for four hours. Like, yeah, it, two hours is enough for me. Yeah. In fact, I'm not even watching the next one because I had a panic attack during the last. <laughs> no, you didn't, No, legit. Like, it just. That's not funny, but what? No, it's not funny, but I don't know. I just, like, the things they were saying so crazy. And all of a sudden, I was sitting there and then my heart started racing and I started having a full blown panic attack. And then I turned it off and I was like, you know what? Nope. So, guess what? I'm not watching it at all, but still, I think. It's too long. If you were drinking, that wouldn't have happened. But no, I, I get you because they say such crazy things, Ben Carson and Donald Trump in particular, and people are like, yeah, America. And then it's really cr- scary because people really believe this yeah, crap. That's I think that's what yeah. triggered me to have the panic attack. Yeah. Remember when Carly Fiona, I mean, Fiorina, Fiorina, Fiorina spoke about Planned Parenthood and that baby. <laughs> oh who she, she felt she was talking about how a baby was on the table crying and kicking. And they were like, well, let's we have to keep its brain. And that like, wasn't even true. Yeah, it wasn't. And I was like, oh, my God, we need to shut it down. Like, I am like the most progressive. Chris, stop it. <laughs> I don't know. Like, she almost had me from it. I mean, the image was just so vis- like well, visible. Well, yeah, she made it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's easy to be graphic when you're a liar. Was she right, high when true. she watched I the video? That, like, she might have had some K2. It's like four Pinocchios right yes. there. 
And like, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Alyssa. Oh, I was going to say, I was going to change the topic a little and Ditto. speak of other things that are a little scary and may cause you to have a panic attack. Um, so, you know, the NYPD has x-ray vans? Yes. Yeah, no, legit. And they don't want to talk about them. So oh, the uh, NYCLU, which is the New York Civil Liberties Union, and there's an article about it in New York Magazine. Um, but apparently when uh, the commissioner, Bratton, was asked about the uh, transparency and about the x-ray vans, he said, quote, those are issues I'd prefer not to divulge to the public at this time. So uh, if you're not surprised, the NYPD is probably, I don't know, rolling around their x-ray van and who knows what they're x-raying. But just so you know what this is, this is actually um, basically the whole body imager technology uh, that was installed in airports several years ago that people complained about because they got a reputation as being the naked scanners. And by the way, just in case you want to know how much money came out of your taxes for this, each van cost between $729,000 and $825,000. So it cost almost a million dollars for each one of these vans and the NYPD has two of them and uh, they don't want to tell us anything about them which kind of scares the hell out of me. Weren't they saying they, need, they needed money for more cops? How many cops could they have hired with that waste of money right there? Uh, they hired 1,300 more cops. Well you know what? You, yeah but they had to get more money from the city council to do it. Yeah now they need 13, now there's 1,300 more people on the street that you know but have to get hands. their make their quota I'm that gonna doesn't so exist. I'm going to put so much porn inside my jacket so when they <laughs> x-ray me all they see is that. Oh wow. So speaking of creepy a porno company, I think they're called Brazzers, just opened up university for becoming oh, a porn yeah, star. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> porn star university? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you need they're to go- learn? They're going to be, I guess, teaching the actors the tricks. I the don't actresses. know. You know, that's interesting, that what do you need to learn? So um, I was reading an article, it may have been in Vice Magazine a few years back, and it was all about how actually it's not just like having sex on camera. Like they are like filming different shots, and I don't. it's probably a little too racy for us to get into uh, yeah. in discussion on the radio and we can obviously have that discussion further but I think it's a lot more complicated at least for the man mm. it can yeah. be a lot more complicated than you think it is yeah. um, when you're really? filming a scene over the course of three hours and I certain things have to that. be working properly I saw a documentary <laughs> about that about um, like how difficult guys are underpaid and overworked in the porn in- industry I thought women were underpaid women are definitely not underpaid in porno not in they're, porn they're the top like money makers but anyways guys um what are, what do they name the degrees over there? Like, can you have like a bachelor's wow. in like in like philosophy or anthropology, but in like but anthropology? <laughs> I mean, I don't. I mean, I, I really. I mean, I don't. I don't know who's gonna take that university. You know, like, seriously. I actually took a class in in, as, in my first in uh, the anthropology of sex. I in my in college oh. when I was at Binghamton, um, and it was a really really interesting class. And it was we like had to read Michael Foucault's like philosophy on Is sexuality and like something like no, he's a philosopher. Um, but it was actually really, really interesting. Um, I don't think that necessarily fits into pornographer school, but... How do you know, huh? I don't know. So. Maybe they're studying all sorts of stuff. Maybe you can go to, to like, Brazzers University and go to law school from there. I don't know. You could also go to Sports Betting University. That's a university? Yeah, it's where you learn how to launder money in big bags and send it offshore. Oh, that's what he said. Tell us some more about it, Alyssa. All right, Speaking so of. there was a big breaking news this week, and it was about the sports betting industry, and apparently the FBI has been investigating organizations like FanDuel and DraftKings 
teams, which if you don't know, are fantasy sports organizations where you can go on and you can deposit some money into an account and then you can compete against other people um, and then you can potentially win money. Now, in certain states, though, gambling is illegal. And Mm -hmm. so in those states, like you're not you're only supposed to be able to participate for fun, like you can't actually gamble. Um, But these websites have been allegedly skirting some of these laws. Mm. And that's also led to. So, you know what happens when you skirt laws and you have a lot of Mm. money coming in? You have to put that money somewhere. That's called laundering, right? Mm. You have to make that money seem legit in some way. And so there's actually been reports of like kind of almost like mafioso type stuff where people carrying bags of money on planes and to the Caymans to try and figure out where to put this money and how to avoid the government knowing about this money. Um, And then actually the latest news I heard is that Nevada actually shut down the websites because of Nevada's gambling regulations. Nevada gambling is actually legal, (laughs) but because it's legal, there's a ton of regulations Mm. on it. And so regulators said that because this is gambling and they are skirting the Nevada regulations that they were shutting them down. So I think there's going to be a lot more that comes out about this story. Well, in their defense, I made $100 off of them. At the beginning of the football season, and I only put in like twenty five bucks. My my question was: Will this affect casual game? I don't know what you call them, like casual betters, people like Stanley who well, get into the game every now, every so often. Well, I mean, will it? I mean, not m- really m- at the moment. No, no. But they it, start it affects yeah. taxpayers potentially really? because if they're laundering money offshores, that's money that they're not paying taxes on. So that's money that's coming out of the U.S. Treasury Department that that should you know otherwise be the people's money, so to speak. You know, tax money is our money for the government to be spending. But the other thing that question that it raises is actually about integrity within sports when Mm. there's so much money involved and, you know, there's so much on the line. I mean, I don't want to use like Pete Rose as the example, but that's like the most well-known example of somebody essentially being paid off to like throw a game in order to. To you know, because of gambling, right? For well, gambling reasons. In Pete Rose's defense, there was never any proof that he threw a game while being a coach of the Cincinnati Reds, or like he betted on other teams. Right. That's why I don't want to use that example, you know, per se. But my point is, you know, if when with gambling and especially with sports gambling comes the potential for impropriety and for integrity problems within sports themselves, and you know, sports are big business in this country for one, but two, you know, we expect there's a certain mm. level that we expect our athletes. I mean. That's why the Lance Armstrong thing was such a big deal, right? Right. That's why Alex Rodriguez is the most hated man in baseball because we expect our athletes to compete with integrity. And and when there's lots of money involved, sometimes that integrity gets lost. We expect athletes to compete with integrity, but we let businesses do what they want to do. Sorry. Speaking of integrity and a lot of money involved, so the state of Illinois is actually issuing their state lottery winners. IOUs. So if you <laughs> won the lottery and you won more than $600, instead of the check, they're issuing the IOU, IOU because of their budget crisis, which is completely, I mean, it's just horrible. There's a lot of internal conflict between um, the state legislators there, which are, I think, majority Democratic, mm-hmm. but they have the new governor there, which is Republican, mm-hmm. and they just haven't gave the um, like their comptroller the authority to continue to issue out these checks because of the internal conflict. You know what gets on my nerves about stuff like this? What? Is that if a person can't pay their bill, whether it be a state bill or like a personal bill, no one's letting them give them an IOU. They're coming right. for everything. <laughs> right. But then as soon as the business is stumbling or the government can't pay a bill, all of a sudden you have to be patient. That's a crock of BS. Give these people 
people their lottery money. They well, I mean, they legally can't. Like the person in charge of that legal, legally uh, legally cannot issue those checks. Well, right I now. legally cannot pay Sally Mae because I legally don't make enough money. Stop calling me Naviant. Um, guys, <laughs> if you have a question or a comment, um, on this issue or anything else that we're talking about, or if you simply want to uh, talk about your own story that made you, you know, robbed you up a little bit this week, then you can call us at at two one two six five zero six nine zero three. You can also tweet us at be heard underscore radio. I don't know if this happened this week or last week. I, my memory's fuzzy. Raven Simone saying she wouldn't oh. hire someone who had a ghetto name like um, Watermelon yeah. Nisha, even though her name is Raven Simone with an accent where it sh- there should be no accent. Did you so see the thing that I posted about how <laughs> we, we get Rachel Dozal <laughs> they they yes. have to take Raven Simone. What was oh. it? I don't know. It was I really will funny. gladly trade Rachel Dozal for Raven yeah, Simone. Yeah, I mean, so well, the thing is, Raven has since uh, issued an apology. You, even her father was like, sometimes she says stupid ish um so like does her so, black card get revoked oh she lost that raven right. is so i don't want to say cooney but like she uh-huh. just says anything Raven's and a- but she believes it she believes what yeah, she says like that i don't you know what it is what this is someone who's very clearly like white whitewashed and mm. like very much so wants like wants to deny or doesn't understand her culture it's like she's been, she's been listening to ben carson motivational tapes right <laughs> it's, it's something she, she must be on the uh, the ben carson wagon she said that like i'm not black i don't like the labels i'm american which is yep. another label she yep. said she was from like 20 different continents even though we only have seven she i mean like she this is not the first time she said something stupid she would say something else stupid oh and coulter sent for her soul oh guess okay. what in, and in 2020 she's running for president right yeah. that's oh, why God. she's saying oh. stupid stuff Raven Raven someone, Raven someone. Someone. Oh, okay. I, I hope that's a joke so ann coulter was on the view this thursday and raven simone said well my, my mother taught me that you know if you don't have anything nice to say don't say anything at all in regards to ann coulter's book talking about immigrants and i guess saying some very disparaging things and ann coulter said if I didn't send for you, don't come. And then she said, at least I'm talking about policy and not just making fun of people's names like Watermelonisha. Ann Coulter said that. Said that to Raven Simone. Wow. Cut Raven Simone up for the rest I of the show. I hate when I have to agree with somebody that I yeah. don't like. I've never <laughs> agreed with Ann Coulter before in life, but I will say that was a good one. Yeah. I'll give credit where credit is due. I actually want to give you a little piece of breaking news that just popped up on my radar, but the New York Times is reporting that the Pentagon says that uh, the leader of a Qaeda cell was killed during an airstrike in Syria. His name is Sanif al-Nassar. He's a Saudi national. He was part of a network of about two dozen Qaeda terrorist operatives called the Kosaran Group. And like I said, uh, this is just breaking news from about a half an hour ago. The Pentagon said he was killed during an airstrike. It's funny you mention that because one of the biggest pieces of news this week is that we are not leaving Afghanistan. The president just announced that, that we're going to be staying there longer than expected. And I know that was one of his big campaign promises when he first ran for office. How do you guys feel about that? I mean, he said that he's leaving, I think, 9,000 troops there throughout 2016. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's He's leaving them there because of they, the, the country needs more stability and they don't want another uprising or they don't want either the Taliban or ISIS or another terrorist group to take over. You know, someone so, told me. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Listen. I was going to say, just well, so when Stanley first reached out to me and he said, it looks like the president is going to reverse our withdrawal and it's huge news. And then I wrote, um, you know, if it's true. And then I wrote back, it is true, but I disagree that it's huge news because if you consider the fact that we never actually withdrew from Afghanistan in the first place. So that's really my opinion is like you know the whole the whole withdrawal is just a huge farce um so you know i don't really see it as like big 
breaking news, so to speak. Yeah. I don't know. That's just my opinion. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a bit of, of a political operative and foreign policy expert, and this is about two years ago, and he said, you think we can just walk out of Iraq and Afghanistan? Oh, no, we cannot. At this point, we damn near have to... Um, colonize those places it's because easy that's to the walk only into place. a war it's hard yeah. to get out of one we are not leaving Afghanistan we are not leaving Iraq for a long time be ready to be there for a while this will be the war of our generation and possibly our grandkids because you cannot just go and knock everything over George Bush and then walk away we can't and every time we try things have gotten worse i.e. ISIS so yeah we're going to be here for a long time no matter how good the president is didn't John McCain say we should be there forever well, he he was he might <laughs> yeah, be right. John McCain's really? a war hawk. I mean, yeah, he, he's a war hawk, but like you can't leave there. Mm. There's no like there's no way you can leave there, not in the foreseeable future. I if with it for twenty years, I'm not surprised. Ooh. You know, speaking of um George Bush and uh, his brother Jeb, who's running for president, isn't there like a huge fight going on right now on the mm. right about somebody having said oh, something yeah. um about nine <laughs> eleven and Jeb Bush said no one blames my brother for nine eleven. <laughs> what planet does Jeb Bush All live right, on? Jeb, I saw a Jeb's curse disqualified from running for president now. What'd you say? I said Jeb's disqualified from running yeah. for president. I can't. I, I can't even stand. I that just made me lose. He he lost all credibility. Well, can you game. really blame George Bush for nine eleven? Think about it. I mean, I'm not saying like. You can put all of that blame, but mm-hmm. Intel has come out saying that they did know that something like this was going to happen in advance, and he didn't take pr- proper protocol or procedure to prevent mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I mean, but, listen, as far as I'm concerned, if you want to blame Hillary, I'm saying if. I'm not yeah, saying not sure. But it, it's, it's like a logical thing. If, uh, you know, if P, then Q. If not P, then not Q. If you yeah. want to blame Hillary for four people dying in Benghazi because mm. of intelligence failures, um, then you have to be able to place the same blame on George W. Bush for 3,000 people dying due to intelligence failures. So, yeah. you know, if P, then Q, pretty much. I'm very comfortable blaming George Bush for Iraq. I'm very comfortable blaming him for Afghanistan. I'm very comfortable blaming him for ISIS. Mm-hmm. Because we'd had no ISIS if we didn't invade Iraq. Nine Eleven, I would say, like, th- there's definitely fault there, but I wouldn't say it was absolutely his fault. Mm-hmm. But I think Alyssa is right that if P then Q, right. if Hillary's is a fault for Benghazi and Obama's a fault for black people, I don't know. I'm just saying you you ha- s- they have to it. be logically consistent, yeah. right? They can't say, you know, well, intelligence failures, so you know, let's do this witch hunt towards Hillary, which obviously is coming out. That's another big thing that's come Ooh, out this week about yep. how like all these staffers, Republican staffers, are now coming out and saying like the Benghazi committee is totally political yep. and it's all about the presidency and essentially they've been, you know, well we already knew this, but wasting our tax dollars to invest investigate this in order to affect Hillary's poll numbers. Which, you know what? Yep. The the Congress does have an obligation to investigate government wrongdoing and, and to investigate them, not themselves, so to speak, but other branches of government. That's one of the functions of Congress. But that doesn't mean they're allowed to use that to go on a political witch hunt to try and win the White House back in 2016, because that's not the purpose of those committees. Oh, you are in the wrong government now, Alyssa. So, guys, we do have to go on a break. When we come back, we'll be at the main event, the presidential debate for the Democrats, the rumble on on the left in Las Vegas. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR. Hot thugs. Chicken wings. Popeye's biscuits. You don't consider yourself a capitalist, though. Do I consider myself part of the casino capitalist process by which so few have so much and so many have so little? No, I don't. 
I believe in a society where all people do well, not just a handful of billionaires. Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. Actually, <laughs> this is a Ben Carson studio, so thank you very much. We are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you were just tuning in, so far we've had an action-packed show. We talked about sex trafficking. It got weird. We had a news roundup where we talked about Jeb Bush saying that his brother isn't blamed for 9-11. We talked about Ben Carson and Donald Trump protesting the next debate. We talked about Ravens Simone being an idiot, and now we are talking about the thing that everyone wants to talk about, the Democratic, a.k.a. Socialist debate <laughs> for president, where you had the big five, just kidding, the big three, just kidding, the big two, Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton, oh, and Martin O'Malley, the former governor and mayor of Maryland, was there as well, and Jim Webb, and then the other guy who I don't even Lincoln know. Lincoln Chafee. Lincoln Chafee. He's a former governor as well. He's a former Sen- governor. No, Rhode Island? Yeah, Senator from Rhode Island. Senator from Rhode Island, and as you can see, the, the last two were very irrelevant. Not because we don't <laughs> want to respect them, but because they're just really irrelevant. But right. that's not important, guys. So we are here to have a full recap of the debate. If you were missing this week, if you were not watching the debate on Tuesday, if you did not care to see it, we are giving you all the details that you want to know. We're going to talk about the ups, the downs, the zingers, the awkward moments, and even that time when Selena got clo- quoted in the Guardian newspaper because we held a debate party at the Angel of Harlem. Shout out to Angel of Harlem. That was a useless piece of information, but so what? I wanted to say it. And if you have any questions, concerns, or, quote, or curse words, give us a call at 212-650-6903. Make sure you say your name. Make no sure you words. don't curse. And make sure you know that my name is Stanley Fritz and I care about your life. And I'm here with Selena Hill and Alyssa Motherloving Fuchs. This is how we talk about politics in the election. What you heard when we first came in was Fetty Wap, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Bernie Socialist Sanders. Uh, yes. I probably dislike this man more than I dislike... Barack J. Kwan Hussein Obama, but at least Bernie Sanders isn't rapping all the time. <laughs> so, Bernie Sanders came in as the unofficial frontrunner, at least for the youth vote and for the left vote and the progressive vote. And what he was going to do with this debate was show that he could hold his own against Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton is trying to convince us that she's a progressive, mm-hmm. and she was trying to show the establishment that she still had it. There's no reason to be afraid. And they came into this debate, and they both had something to prove. Martin O'Malley was looking to take shots as many as possible so he could make a name for himself. I don't know what Jim, Jim Webb Jim or Webb Lincoln Webb wanted were to doing. tell us about how he took shots in Vietnam. Yes, yes, and how he killed someone. Thanks a lot, Jim Webb. That was so awkward. Lincoln Chafe, he just wanted time to speak, I think. No, no, that was Jim Webb. That was Jim Webb, too. What did Lincoln Chafe Lincoln Chafe wanted you to know that he's a man of integrity, that he's never had a scandal, and he's mm. over yeah. 30 years of politics. Yes, yes, and yes. And he is very ethical. Yes, yes. I think that we got a lot from this debate. It was not as entertaining as a Republican debate, but who cares? So we're going to supposed to be entertaining. Yes, it it's is. It's supposed Alyssa. to be a debate. We actually saw a debate this time. I don't care about leadership. I want entertainment. If Donald <laughs> Trump isn't telling someone they're stupid because they're a woman, I don't want to listen to it. Or if so, they're ugly. Yes. <laughs> or that they're bleeding out of somewhere. Or that he could be mean to them, but he's going to be nice. If he's not telling someone that, or if someone's not being made fun of because they hugged a black guy, I don't care. And Ben Carson's speaking about Nazis. Yes, or saying we should pay tithes. Oh, God. The Republicans <laughs> yeah, are dominating our conversation, that? guys. Anyways, please, let's start this conversation off with the high points for everyone. We will start with Alyssa because I think she is cool. What was your your highest point in the debate, the point that you were like, the most excited about? Go. Honestly, the nobody cares about your yeah. damn emails. Yep. That was the mm-hmm. highlight for me because it's something I've been saying for a while, which is, you know what? She's come out. She said she, you know, she that she apologized. She didn't do anything wrong, but she realizes that, you know, now why she maybe should have used the State Department email email system instead of her own, um, you know, the president said that she made a mistake, but that it wasn't wrong and it wasn't illegal what she did. And, you know, 
now the emails have been made transparent and, uh, you know, some of them have been made confidential. But at the end of the day, like the email thing is just another scandal that it's not a real scandal. I'll call it a controversy that Republicans made up to try and affect her poll numbers, although some people would disagree about that. Um, and like, you know, what? at the end of the day, let's talk about policy. Let's talk about moving this country in, a, you know, in a direction that we need to be moving to fix the issues that are currently facing us in 2015 and will be next year. And let's stop talking about her damn emails. So, Alyssa, are you, Bernie. are you Bernie's communications That's director? I, I want to play the clip of what he said, and it's very similar to this, guys. You listen to this, and you let us know what you think. Let me say, let me say something that may not be great politics, but I think the secretary is right. And that is that the American people are sick and tired of hearing about your damn emails. Thank you. Me too. Me too. <laughs> you know? The middle class Anderson... And let me say something about the media as well. I go around the country, talk to a whole lot of people. Middle class of this country is collapsing. We have 27 million people living in poverty. We have massive wealth and income inequality. Our trade policies have cost us millions of decent jobs. The American people want to know whether we're going to have a democracy or an oligarchy as a result of Citizens United. And that yes. is what Bernie had to say. And a lot of people were complaining because they, they didn't hear that part. That is what he said afterwards. But people mostly focus on him shaking Hillary's hand. Selena? Well, the thing is, Bernie got a lot of slack for that comment. A lot of people, especially those on the right and people like Donald Trump, were like, Bernie should not have defended Hillary Clinton's quote unquote scandal on the emails and that he shouldn't have shook her hand because it just made Hillary look better. And what and what he basically did was he just basically canceled out this issue for the primary. I, on the other hand, I didn't agree with that. And I don't agree with that assessment because I think that Bernie said what us as progressives, as Democrats are all thinking and talking about. And he spoke up for that and it made him look like a bigger candidate. He wants to talk about the issues and that's the candidate that I want to elect. I don't want a candidate on the left or on the right to sit there and talk about something that's not a real issue, which is Hillary Clinton's um, emails. Was that also a high point for you, Selena? Yeah, that was my high point. I want to respond to that, actually. Um, So two things. One, anything that Donald Trump or the Republican Party says is a bad idea, it's probably wrong anyway, because it's a a house full of crazy people, as we have seen (laughs) in the literal House of Representatives. Um, Number two, Speaking about this politically, that was a bad move by Bernie. So you agree it was a bad oh, move? Oh, yeah, because that's, this is this takes away one bullet that you can use when it's getting deep and contentious. And like you're trying to knock off some points from her in these individual states where it does matter. So it may not matter to us who are progressive and left-leaning anyway, who are going to vote for Bernie anyway. But there are people who are on the fence who this kind of information will pull their vote. So now if he uses it, it will hurt him because it'll, it'll look like he's backing off on his own word. And the media will not let him forget it. You know, I, uh, on certain level, I agree with you on that. But on another level, I think it puts him above the fray. I think some people who are on the fence may say, you know what? This is a man who really wants to focus on policy and problems and is not going to be uh, swayed by the political wins, so to speak. And that is makes me more likely to vote for him instead of less likely to vote for him. Well, I mean, did you say that? But Hillary wiped the floor with him when it came to policy. No, I mean, <laughs> and, no, that's true. Like and and uh, especially when it came to the gun issue. Oh, yeah. 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 He, he definitely slipped up and stumbled. Hillary had almost a flawless performance. But I think that when it came to guns, uh, Bernie was not strong, and he need. I think that in the next debate we'll see a stronger. He'll have a stronger stance on that issue. And I mean, in Bernie's defense, he comes from a situation where you know he did vote the way he did because he you know represents a real state, and he made that clear. However, uh, his position on that issue puts him squarely on a different 
place or in a different place, slightly different place than most of the people in the progressive moment are, even people who are gun owners uh, or who live in rural states and who are essentially blue in a in a red neighborhood. In case you guys are wondering, as far as how they were graded for their guns, Bernie Sanders got rated a D minus from the National Rifle Association. But Martin O'Malley, who was trying to get points in the election to show that he's a real progressive, was given an F. An F. And not only that, but the NRA called him a menace. Mm. So if you're looking for someone who's really ticking off the NRA and these gun groups, Martin O'Malley might be your guy. He What's said up? that at the end when he they were asked, who have you made any enemies oh, yeah. with? And after, uh, you know, um, after Lincoln Chafee spoke about who... The, the guy he killed. He, well, no, that was Jim Webb. Um, <laughs> he spoke last. But after uh, Lincoln Chafee spoke about, like, you know, the, the oil and coal industry, I think he said, and then they panned to Martin O'Malley and he was like, the National Rifle Association. <laughs> and of course, then, like, the look on Lincoln Chafee's face was classic because he, like, wanted that one back. He was like, man, I should have said that. Right. I want, uh, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah me too. But so, he said... Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much what happened. Right. So uh, one thing I want to talk about, because we've watched these Republican debates. Alyssa had a panic attack during one of them because it was so crazy. But th- the thing that makes them so entertaining is that people say crazy things and they are going after each other's heads. And this debate, that didn't seem to be as much of an issue. And right. because of that, we saw a moderator who, at least from my opinion, seemed to be very aggressive. What do you guys think about Anderson Cooper's moderation approach? We'll start with Selena. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Anderson Cooper. I'm a journalist, and I love everything that he does, and I think that he's very professional. You, He was very assertive and very aggressive, but, and the thing is, I didn't think that there was anything wrong with that. I think that we knew from the start that these candidates were going to be a little more, you know, they weren't going to attack each other. They weren't going to call each other ugly or fat, as we heard in the Republican debate. (laughs) So, you know, in order to spice things up, you need to sort of come with an aggressive approach. And I think he did a great job moderating. I I agree with that. But I also think it has to do with the fact that you saw the grownups in the room. And I don't just say that because it was the Democrats and because I'm a Democrat. I say that because this was a real debate. I mean, you the first question you asked me what I what I thought the highlight of the debate was. And I gave you what I thought was the highlight within the debate. But I think the real highlight of the debate was the debate itself. Mm. The fact that it was actually a debate. There were asked questions. They were pushed on their policy positions. They were challenged on their answers by Anderson Cooper and asked follow-up questions. They challenged each other. But they, the things that they were challenging each other, uh, you know, wasn't about who called who fat or ugly or this or that or how many times somebody filed bankruptcy or whether, you know, X, Y, or Z, they were arguing with each other about policy for the most part and also a little bit about politics. And so what you actually got to see was what I think of and what most people think of when they think of of a debate, not three hours of craziness and who can be say the most xenophobic and racist things imaginable. Thank you so much, listen. That's very true. Guys, if you are just tuning in, this is Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM, WHCR, the voice of Harlem. We are talking about the first Democratic debate that took place earlier this week on Tuesday with Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, Martin O'Malley, Jim Webb, and Lincoln Chafee. One of these people killed someone, and it wasn't Lincoln Chafee, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, or Martin O'Malley, or maybe it was. There's another guy, too, Jim Webb. And if you want to call him with any questions, concerns, or comments, the number is 212-650-6903. Again, that is 212-650-6903. We all know what we want to talk about in here. Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton, how they did, who won, who didn't win. We're not going to get to that right now. <laughs> what I want to do 
is first focus on some of these outlier candidates to see what you guys thought about them. And I think the most legitimate one to talk about is Martin O'Malley. What did you take away from him in this debate? We'll start with Alyssa. So, you know, the thing about Martin O'Malley is he came off as very politician-like. Mm. You know, he didn't, like, he seemed like a politician. He spoke like a politician. But Martin O'Malley's biggest issue isn't how he seemed at the, the debate. Martin O'Malley's biggest issue is that the policies that he put in place in Baltimore helped to expand the police state, very much so, um, and led to the, de- uh, you know, essentially led to the situation which led to the death of Freddie Gray. And his policies have been very much broken windows type type policing policies like you see here in New York City, which essentially criminalize low-income communities of color. That's Martin O'Malley's biggest problem, and I don't think he did so well answering the Black Lives Matter question, and he definitely didn't do so well previously when asked that question when he had numerous times said all lives matter. So I think that's Martin O'Malley's biggest problem, is give, that issue. Give us a refresher. What Do you remember his response when he was asked about Black Lives Matter? I, you know, I don't remember off the top of my head. Maybe we could get the clip um, okay. if, if possible um you know uh, but i do know previously before this debate on two separate equations when he was asked this question he had said all lives matter matter. and then had to like walk back his comments and Mm. qualify them and i'm pretty sure at the debate you know he did mention that there's issues in low-income communities of color that need to be dealt with but it was almost i don't want to want to call it a 180 maybe he's finally coming around and i'll give him the benefit of the doubt you know but like i I don't know. Maybe I'm being too generous. No, I I completely agree with you, Alyssa. And I I think that with uh, Martin O'Malley, he would do us much better service as American people if he used his platform and took it to Maryland and to try to fight and to overturn some of those uh, uh, policies that he instilled under his governance. I think that with him being in the race, it was almost like a time filler, in my opinion. Like what he said, like you said, it didn't really resonate with people. He sounded like a politician, but he really didn't sound presidential. I mean, it's just it didn't. I don't even have like a one moment where I was like, oh, Martin O'Malley, like something that sticks out of my head with him. It was just, I don't know. I I just don't see his relevancy in the presidential election right now. I'm still looking for the clips, but I think you guys might be a little bit too drunk on Bernie. (laughs) Martin O'Malley, like granted, Alyssa's comment is right, but he actually has the strongest criminal justice reform plan right now as a presidential candidate, stronger than Hillary, stronger than Bernie's. And he actually came out very strongly for Black Lives Matter at the debate when he was interrupted um when he and bernie were interrupted at the netroots event earlier this year when he said all lives matter he followed up with an interview with the netroots organizers when he said i didn't really know like the context behind it now that i do this is how i feel since then he's been very vocal and also yes granted he did sound political but i don't think we should write like write him off the way i would gladly do for jim webb and lincoln chef as just someone who's dared to fill up space he's a very viable candidate and if bernie didn't get this big swing that he did he probably would have been hillary's main competitor uh, i think you um, no i think you make a good point at least with respect to if bernie wasn't in the race you know, yeah, you're right. He probably would have been Hillary's main competitor. Um, but I still don't think and you know what? He may have a good criminal justice reform plan going forward, but that's still he still has to answer for his tenure in Baltimore. Right. And he right. still has to answer for the, the volatile situation that created, not to mention, uh, at least with respect to the gun issue, which is he is very strong on the gun issue. And that's very good for people on the left. But that doesn't necessarily, you know, and he's not making any friends with the NRA. That's for sure. So that helps him. All right, guys. So we are going on a quick break. When we come back, it's the main topics. Hillary versus Bernie. We'll talk about their Black Lives Matter comments. We'll talk about whether Hillary's a real progressive. And we'll talk about who won. This is Let Your Voice Be Heard. We talk 
Yes. yes, Trick. Yeah. So we are back on Let Your Voice Be Heard on 90.3 FM WHCR, the voice of Harlem. If you are just tuning in, this is Stanley Fritz. I'm here with Selena Hill and Alyssa Fuchs, and we are talking about the Democratic presidential debate. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi to me because you love me, I love you too. Aww. The number is 212-650-6903, or you can tweet us at BeHeard underscore radio. And if you've missed any of this show and you want to tune in, you can find us on iTunes Podcast as well as Scatter Radio because Scatter Radio is where you go where you want to start your own radio show or listen to ours. And Selena has some people tweeting at us and she wants to share those comments. Go ahead. Right. So Chris Thomas actually made a really funny remark in response to Alyssa who mentioned that while she was watching the Republican debate, she had a literal panic attack. Right. So Chris Thomas says, if Donald Trump and Bill and Carson aren't giving you panic attacks, you should have your head examined. Be very afraid. We agree, Chris. <laughs> we definitely agree. It's amazing. Look at the contrast between the top frontrunners from the Republican side and the Democratic side. On the Republican side, you have Tom and Jerry or Donald Trump and Ben Carson. On the Democrat side, you have Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, people who know how to read and think critically. And as you know, as we all have other people who are running for office right now and the Republican Party, their frontrunners will change because that's just the way it is. Whoever says the most racist things in the beginning <laughs> gets the most attention. Then whoever says the most coded language but has policy to support that coded language will probably win the nomination. And the Democratic side, I'm not really sure what's going to happen. I said that once when we were talking about the Republicans. I was like, Donald Trump just says those says those things. I said, but they all believe them. Yeah. They're all right. thinking them. Exactly. And they're just happy that they finally have someone who could say it for them. I want to say there's a lot of similarities when we look at the top candidates in both parties. Ben Carson was actually the top uh, Republican on the in the presidential race to raise the most money in yes. the third quarter. So he and I think that most of his donations have been two hundred dollars or less, and that shows As that. To um, so let's compare to what? Who are you comparing him to? Donald Trump. Or Hillary Clinton. No, no, I said what I said was that in the um, the GOPs, in the Republican, the Republican pool of people who are running in the 2016 race, he has raised the most money in the third quarter. So, and he's getting a lot of small donations. And I think that what that says is that um, regardless of the racist, inflammatory statements that Ben Carson and Donald Trump make, I really think that this country, especially people that fall on the right, really want something outside of a political candidate, outside of the establishment, outside of what we've been getting. And I know that Bernie Sanders, as we spoke about a few weeks ago, he's also raised $26 million in the third quarter. And again, he's, I mean, he's that... I want to say he's kind of like that contrast because of his policy and his points and he doesn't come across as like someone who's like very moderate. He can be more leftist and he can say things that are more extreme. Oh, but it's like, is that what our country is craving for? I, well, you got you. I, I will still say this at this point in the election. It is still very much so inside baseball. The people who are paying attention to this would usually pay attention. The people watching the Republican debate a lot of times are just people who want to be entertained. But that Democratic debate, it's not very like high entertainment wise. It's inside baseball. I would say at this moment, the reason that Bernie Sanders is winning is because the people who are really watching are further to the left. They're progressives. And we really got to see what happens as people start to focus more. Right. And, you know, I'm going to say something that's going to be pretty unpopular with some of the people that are Bernie supporters, which I am one. I should say that. So but, you know, uh, nonetheless, I think it's it's important that I 
you know, put my position out there, which is I love Bernie Sanders. His policy positions are, are closer to mine. I am not Hillary's biggest fan. Um, however, this important th- this election is really important uh, is for many reasons. One of them being there's going to be several Supreme Court vacancies opening up and whoever's president is going to be appointing people. And right now, if you don't already know, right on the court, we have pretty much four liberals and four conservatives and one person, Anthony Kennedy, who sort of swings in the middle. Um, so if a conservative, a Republican gets elected to be president in 2016 and appoints three justices to the Supreme Court, that's going to change the balance of the court. You could see, you know, things like the gay marriage decision being overturned, Roe versus Wade being overturned, et cetera, et cetera. So as far as I'm concerned, the Democrats, it's our election to lose. And this is where I get into saying something that's going to be really unpopular. I love Bernie. He fits my positions a lot closer than Hillary does. However, I've been looking at the polls the general election polls in swing states, okay? Um, so Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Florida are the states that I've been looking at. And I've been looking at Bernie versus Trump, uh, Bernie versus Ben Carson, Hillary versus Trump, Hillary versus Ben Carson, looking at these matchups. And what I found is, is uh, at least right now, and I will update this as you know more time goes on because this could change, but at least right now, Bernie can't win Ohio and Bernie can't win Florida. And in order to win this presidential election, you have to be able to win at least one of those states. If you don't win Ohio, you have to be able to win Florida. And if you don't win Florida, you have to be able to win Ohio. And if Bernie can't win either of those states, if he loses to Trump, if he loses to Carson, if he loses to even somebody who's lower down in the polls on the Republican side, which right now he is, then the Democrats can't win this election. And so, you know, there's also some strategic, some people are only going to vote based on ideology. And, you know, if that's you, I get it. Um, But I'm a pragmatist. And so I think it's important that we not only look at who represents our ideals the best, but we also look strategically at who can actually beat the Republicans in this election. Because at the end of the day, if you go into that booth and you vote on principle only, then you may be saying hi to President Carson or President Trump. And, you know, that may not be such a good thing at the end of the day. That would be a disaster. And that would be completely scary. But you're right, Alyssa. And I think that we do need to also look at things in a very practical manner. But like we had, like we talked about a few weeks ago, some people are saying that Bernie just might be that next Barack Obama to like to sideswipe no, Hillary. I don't think he has And it. I'll tell you why. Because when they asked people about, would you vote for a Muslim? Would you vote for a Christian? Would you vote for a Jew? Would you vote for a socialist? But guess what? Something like 35% of this country said they would vote for a Muslim. And like, I think it was 22% of people would vote for somebody who's a self-described socialist. Now, Bernie's explained what he means by democratic socialist. But the fact that he won't call himself a capitalist, even though he does claim to support small businesses um, puts him on the losing end because, like I said, only 22 people in this country would vote for somebody who 100%. describes themselves as a socialist. So that really, really hurts him. And his record on guns hurts him. That's a really good point, Alyssa. So we have more to talk about, but I want to make sure we get this caller on the air. We have Chris Thomas on air. Let your voice be heard, Chris. Thanks, Stanley. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, two quick things. One, I completely disagree with Alyssa, just because in 2006 and 7, also when Barack Obama was on the rise, we were dealing with articles of, oh, is America ready for a black president? You could say the same things about some of the things Bernie Sanders is promoting or being a democratic socialist, but I think there's still a chance that he's worth voting for, at least for me. Um, my second point is more of a question for everyone. Uh, there was a story that came out after the democratic debates. It was posted on Alternate, but I think New Yorker and a couple of other people covered it as well. 
it's a matter of, okay, the media came out and said Hillary kind of roundly won the debate. But if you look at some of the polls that were taken by actual voters or taken by, I guess, uh, other media outlets, Bernie Sanders actually carries registered voters by, in some cases, a 12- to 18-point margin. I guess, what do you think would be the cause of some of that dichotomy, and do you agree with it to some degree? So I, I want to get both these things, actually. I, I hope Bernie wins, but I don't, think we, I don't think we can completely compare him to Barack Obama. We're forgetting Bernie is great, but Barack was not as far left as Bernie was on the issues. That's one. Two, he was coming at a point where you had a— a Republican who had pretty much demolished the country and people were sick and tired of that particular establishment. Say what you want to say about Obama, but he's been a pretty good president and there's not as much urgency for change this time around. In regards to the results of like how people perceive the debate, let's, let me be very clear. Hillary won that debate. And yes, the people on social media and, and some media outlets like Policy Mike have said that that Bernie won, but you have to remember who whose opinion that's coming from. Those younger voters, those people who are more social on more social media. If you really want to see who won the debate, look at the polls after the debate. Hillary Clinton gained in all the polls, all the national polls. Now that doesn't really say much for the ground because what's happening in in, in individual states can be different, like in Iowa, or New Hampshire. But she definitely gained traction in those polls, which I think supports that victory. Alyssa, yeah, no, I just wanted to add to that. I think Stanley makes a good point, and I'm not discounting what you had to say, Chris, because I think you, you know, like your your point is decent as well. Um, but m- you know, when you asked about if you look at would you elect somebody who's black versus would you elect somebody who calls himself a socialist? Overwhelmingly, it's like 60% of the country, if not 65% of the country, would elect somebody who's black, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, whereas still, only 22% of the country will elect somebody who considers themselves a self-described socialist, which means we really have to change the messaging on what democratic socialism is. And that's a whole separate issue that we don't have the time to get into at the moment as much as I would like to. On the second issue, who won the debate is completely subjective, right? Everybody's going to have a different consideration as to who won the debate. So, you know what? It's like, at my point, it's neither here nor there at this point, because you know, you could feel that, I don't feel there was any, I think the winners were the Democratic Party, to be honest. I don't feel, like, I think Hillary had a really strong performance, and I think Bernie had a really strong performance. I hate this, like, one person won, one person lost kind of thing, where it's, like, so black and white, because I don't see it that way. I think they both performed strongly. I happen to think think Bernie performed strong in some areas that Hillary didn't, and Hillary performed strong in, uh, in areas that Bernie didn't, and I'm hesitant to say there was a winner or a loser. I hate that dichotomy. I was so. Right. Oh, Chris, thank you so much for calling in. Great question, great point, great comment that you just made. Um, I want to say that, you know, when it comes to, like, Bernie Sanders and the fact that he's not calling himself a capitalist, I think that that does hurt him, but I think that, and it did and it did hurt him in a sense during the debate, but like the question was, who won, right? I think that Bernie Sanders won, and it is an opinion-based question, and the reason why I think that is because Bernie Sanders did a great job at showing America what a democratic socialist is. He, if you believe in Medicare, if you believe in Social Security, if you believe in not giving the richest 1% of our of our Americans all this, all this wealth and all of this power, then more than likely you 
you agree and could align with a lot of the principles that Bernie Sanders stands on. And that's all it is. The fact that he won't just, I think he should clarify his messaging. And I think that he should say that, yeah, I'm a capitalist, but I just think we should infuse socialism into our system so that when it comes to um, this system that we have now, not only big businesses and big corporations can win. And I think that if he changed his messaging a little bit more, he would resonate with a lot more people. But Bernie Sanders on that stage showed America that he is electable. We already knew Hillary Clinton was polished and electable going in there, and she did what we expected her to do. Bernie Sanders, in my opinion, did better than expected, and that's why he won. So we're running out of time. I think Alyssa kind of answered the question of who she thought won, which was like, I don't really like answering that question. I just did, so too. You did, too. <laughs> I'm going to say, despite all that, I still think Hillary won. She had the most to lose at the debate. She had the most attacks coming at her, whether it be through moderators or other people on the stage, and she came through unscathed. Um, she had some of the biggest like clips. Um, let's go ahead. You know, I just wanted to actually I think part of that also is she may have kept Joe Biden out of the race because yes. I think mm. Joe Biden was waiting to see how she did at the debate. And yeah. a lot of the commentary you're hearing, which is at least even if you think Bernie won the actual debate, the real winner was Hillary in and of the fact that she may keep Joe Biden out. Now, yeah. that still remains to be seen. So we'll see. But, yeah. you know, that may have some truth to it. Yeah, she had a lot of people flanking her and she pretty much beat beat all of them like or at least was unable to like outwit all of them for that moment so guys we do have to wrap this conversation up whenever we talk about politics in particular debates the conversation goes pretty long and we're, we're unhappy we can't keep it going with you but you can continue the conversation on your own this is the big presidential election make sure you are informed make sure you are letting your voice be heard you can keep commenting on our twitter and on our facebook and we will talk about this as the election proceeds but until then guys we got to go on a quick break we'll be right back and when we return it'll be the quickie And we are back. And my name is Alyssa Fuchs. I'm here with Selena Hill and Stanley Fritz. And I'm about to give you the quickie. Uh, today we're talking about Montgomery versus Louisiana, which is a case that was just heard in oral arguments by the Supreme Court that they'll be deciding on later on this term. Uh, I'm going to tell you about the facts of the case, the questions that were before the court, give you a little analysis, and then uh, close it out. So um, imagine that you are in prison for a crime that you committed when you were under 18, and that crime was a murder, and you were sentenced to mandatory life without parole. Um, and then in 2012, the court ruled that mandatory life without parole for juvenile uh, murder crimes was unconstitutional. Uh, what would your first reaction be? Uh, well, it would probably be, hey, does that ruling apply to me? Because I want to get out of prison um, if that mandatory sentencing is unconstitutional. Uh, the problem was in 2012, when the Supreme Court decided this case, Miller versus Alabama, that held these sentencing schemes to be unconstitutional under the Eighth Amendment, they also held it did not apply retroactively. So it did not encompass those people that I just mentioned of. One of those people was a guy named Henry Montgomery. Uh, in 1963, Henry Montgomery was found guilty and received the death penalty for the murder of Charles Hunt. Uh, this was a crime that Montgomery committed when he was 17. Uh, his death sentence was overturned and he was eventually sentenced to life without parole. Um, and in light of the Miller decision back in 2012, Montgomery filed a motion in state district court to correct what he was arguing is an illegal sentence. Um, the trial court denied his motion, and the Louisiana Supreme Court denied his application. Also, uh, they held that the decision in Miller does not apply retroactively, which is exactly what the Supreme Court said in 2012. 
Uh, he then filed an appeal to the Supreme Court, um, and the Supreme Court decided that they were going to hear the case. Uh, they posed there was one question that was initially posed, um, which it, you know is the question that I just mentioned: Does the Miller decision apply retroactively? Um, at the heart of that question is the issue of whether several thousands of inmates who received life without parole sentences under mandatory sentencing schemes for murders they committed when they were under 18 can get out of prison or at least have an opportunity to get their sentence reduced. Um, But the second question that the Supreme Court also wanted answered was whether they had actually the jurisdiction to review this case because it had come from a state court instead of from a federal court. Um, And that's really a procedural issue, but I'm going to give you some background into that as well. Uh, So in 2012, as I already mentioned, the Supreme Court decided this Miller case. They declared unconstitutional uh, any mandatory sentencing scheme that says somebody automatically gets life in prison without parole for uh, those convicted of murder that they commit before they're 18. Um, And unless the Supreme Court says so, uh, a decision like Miller does not apply retroactively. uh, So it does not cover anybody who was convicted uh, before the date of the ruling, which was in 2012. Uh, The question of retroactivity goes back to another case uh, from the Supreme Court in 1989 known as Teague versus Lane. It's a really complicated and complex case. I'm not going to get into the details. Um, But basically what they said in Teague was that when the court announces a new criminal rule, it generally does not apply to earlier cases in which the conviction has become final after the first round of lower court review, but it does apply in two circumstances. First, if it's a substantive rule that limits the kind of conduct that can be treated as criminal or, and this is what's important here, limits the type of punishment that can be imposed, or two, if it's a procedural rule but one that goes to the basic fairness of a criminal trial. That um, And that's part of what this fight is over. Uh, so the task before the Supreme Court now in Montgomery is to decide whether the Miller decision laid down a new substantive rule or a new procedural rule. If it's a substantive rule, it can um, and may apply retroactively. If it's a procedural rule, it would not apply retroactively unless it goes to the fairness of the trial, which, as I already mentioned, uh, does not apply in this case. Um, so Montgomery obviously argues that this rule is both new and that it's substantive and therefore it applies retroactively. The state of Louisiana, on the other hand, argues that while Miller did set out a new rule, it is a procedural rule only and it does not go to the basic fairness of the criminal trial and therefore it does not apply retroactively. Um, Henry Montgomery's murder conviction actually became final in December of 1970 um, and his life without parole sentence was in fact mandatory under state law. So um, you know, after the Miller decision came down, Montgomery, like many other people in this situation, uh, wanted to use Miller to undo their sentences. And when he went to the high court in Louisiana, um, they turned him down. And like I said, they said that Miller doesn't apply retroactively because it's procedural. Uh, Montgomery obviously appealed to the Supreme Court, and that's how we got to where we are today. Now, Louisiana, interestingly enough, conceded that the justices have the authority to review the issue, but they still urge the justices not to grant review. Obviously, we're talking about this case, which means the court did grant review. Um, But in doing so, the Supreme Court told the lawyers to file briefs and be prepared to argue the second question uh, about whether the court actually had the jurisdiction to review the case. Um, And because Louisiana actually agreed that the court had the authority to hear the case, the justices did something that's very rare. They appointed another attorney, an outside attorney, to actually argue this uh, issue of jurisdiction, this guy named Richard Bernstein. He's a Washington, D.C. lawyer. Uh, Bernstein told the court that, one, uh, it had no authority to decide the case because it came from a state court, uh, which has no binding obligation to follow the Teague rule, which is something I mentioned earlier. Um, And two, that under the Constitution, the court has limited power to review appeals that come out of state courts. Uh, But he did add that Montgomery has the option
option of refiling his case in federal court, uh, which would resolve this problem. Um, That's just a procedural issue, but I thought it was important to address. Uh, Montgomery obviously argued that the Louisiana Supreme Court turned aside his challenge based largely on federal law and not on state law, and therefore the retroactivity analysis uh, coming from the Teague case should be applied because the fact that the state court actually used federal law in their decision. Uh, Montgomery also argued that the Miller decision established a minimum standard for all states in sentencing juveniles under both the Eighth and the 14th Amendment, which raises a federal question or an issue of federal law that the Supreme Court can address. Um, The key difference that you should understand between Montgomery and the state over the Miller decision is that Montgomery is arguing that this rule is categorical. It's substantive in its nature uh, because it limits a category of punishment, as I pointed out earlier. Um, And those is exactly the kind of factors that have led to the retroactive application of these types of decisions. But the state contends that the, the 2012 decision is procedural in nature only because the court did not categorically bar life without parole sentences for all minors. Rather, it only mandated that states take into uh, an individual's age into account as a mitigating factor uh, before it hands down a mandatory sentence. Uh, So the conclusion of all this is basically, first, the court needs to answer this procedural question. Um, in Montgomery's favor. If the court actually holds that it has no jurisdiction to hear this case, uh, then it will dismiss the case without ever answering the retroactivity question. And Montgomery will actually have to file a second case in federal court. Or if there are already very similar cases pending in federal court, uh, the we will have to just wait and see if the court wants to grant review to one of those cases instead of Montgomery's case um, that presents the issue more squarely and doesn't have the jurisdictional problems that this case does because it comes out of a state court. Um, further, uh, notwithstanding the jurisdictional question, assuming that the court gets past the jurisdictional issue, uh, the outcome of this case is clearly very important, especially for people uh, you know, who are living in impacted neighborhoods uh, or have family members who are in prison for crimes that they were sentenced to ma- uh, under mandatory sentencing schemes when they were juveniles. Because if the court does hold that Miller applies retroactively, it appears that it will allow uh, some inmates who committed murder and were sentenced under mandatory sentencing schemes to life in prison without the possibility of parole to actually seek review of their sentences um, and to ask courts to take into account their youth as a mitigating factor. Now, obviously, some of these people we're talking about are 50, 60, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old. Um, So what I say youth as a mitigating factor, I mean, they would ask for a hearing for a court to review their age at the time they committed the crime to determine whether their original sentence should have been less. Um, And if it is determined that their original sentence should have been less, Less, meaning not life without parole, say, 30-year or 40-year sentence, and they've already served 20 or 30 or 40 years, then that may make them eligible for automatic release, uh, or assuming that after that hearing, the court does reduce their sentence, or may at least make them eligible for parole so that they can get released. So, you know, that is really a big deal because it would affect thousands of people all over the country uh, that may have been sentenced under these schemes that would want to seek hearings to try and get their sentences reduced. You guys have any questions? Um, <laughs> that was a lot of information. I'm pretty good, though. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that conclusion really brought it home for me, Alyssa. And I, I, like you said, we'll just have to see if, you know, I hate to say little Tyrone, who, you know, what? happened to be gangbanging at 13. Who's and got like- Right, and who's now doing life in prison little because Tyrone? somebody shot at him and he shot back. 
Okay, so this is what this case is going to decide. Right, and obviously we will give you a follow-up once the decision comes down, whether it's right. through a, a news roundup or through a, you know, depending on, you know, the ruling. But we'll definitely follow up with you once the ruling comes down uh, later on next year, and uh, we'll tell you what the outcome is. Right. I mean, so we'll, we'll keep seeing, and um, I will pray for the best, and I hope that the Supreme Court does take up this case and doesn't dismiss it. All right, guys, on that note, we have to say goodbye, but guess what? We won't be back next Sunday because there's a fundraiser here at WHCR. So you're going to have to subscribe to our iTunes account at LYVBH Radio if you want more Let Your Voice Be Heard. You should do that on your phone because it's so convenient and easy. You can also check us out at ScatterRadio.com, Stitcher, and our website, LYVBH.com. We love you all and thanks for hanging out with us. Only take one time, only take one, only take one time.